0: It's April 30, 2021. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, I've got an osteoarthritis downer, but don't worry, I've got two uppers, one about jack inhibitors, the other about non-radiographic axial spa. So on the whole, it's going to be a positive podcast, so hang in there. Let's begin with a report from MMWR, which you may have seen this week. The current vaccines that are out there, at least the two mRNA vaccines from Moderna and from Pfizer, have 95% efficacy in protecting against COVID hospitalizations. So this is real world data taken from, I don't know, 13 different states around the country. This is uh, MMWR CDC research showing that adults over the age of 65 who receive both doses of either of the mRNA vaccines were protected to the tune of 95% against COVID hospitalizations. Interestingly, they threw in the net number of what happens when you only get one of the two shots and you're only protected 65%. Positive, but not quite as good as it probably could be. So you should be recommending to your patients that they get both. The ones who absolutely refuse to get a second one, well, maybe you throw them a bone and say you're about 65% affected, maybe 65% protected. That's about the same as maybe the flu vaccine or other sort of so-so vaccines that are out there. We'll talk more about vaccines with our last report um, about the ACR guidance on vaccines. We'll end with that. Another report from Arthritis Research and Therapy looked at gout prophylaxis in patients who were classified as having severe CKD. So this would include end-stage renal disease, patients on hemodialysis, those with, again, stage three or higher CKD. And this was a meta-analysis of 33 different studies looking at what was out there about using drugs to prophylax against flares of gout, especially when starting urate-lowering therapy. It's a long document. It kind of covers the available options in a disease category way. And if you leaf through that or look at that, you'll see one, there's not a lot of good data. So this is a population that really hasn't been all that well studied. There is a lot of reports on uh, in, included about colchicine use as prophylaxis in patients with severe CKD, and, and you can imagine there's a lot of toxicity there. Colchicine has to be dose-adjusted in patients who have renal insufficiency. Let me say that again. Colchicine has to be adjusted as far as its dose in patients who have renal insufficiency. You don't necessarily have to do the same with allopurinol, although it's recommended that you do that. Patients can have creatinines of 2, 3, 4, and still be on high doses of 300 of allopurinol and above, and no effect on renal function. But colchicine, uh uh-uh. They noted a bunch of reports of either um, neuromyopathy, cardiomyopathy, rhabdomyolysis, not good. So again, I would strongly recommend against the use of colchicine. They included a number of studies about IL-1 inhibition, mostly anakinra-done studies showing that it works, um, it has little or no toxicity, but as you can imagine, it's overly expensive and may not be appropriate. They cover non-steroidals, and interestingly, there's not a lot of information about nonsteroidals, but why would you use nonsteroidals to prophylax in people with CKD? That's a special kind of stupid. They talk about other drugs with very little data, but it's worth a review if you're considering this particular problem in your clinic. Steroids, we talked a lot about steroids, and maybe we shouldn't be using steroids. Maybe we should be using steroids. Well, here's some anecdotal data from outside your realm looking at kids who are taking steroid bursts for a lot of different conditions. Um, Either colds, URIs, allergies, asthma, etc., A study from Taiwan, um, and actually studies come from JAMA Pediatrics, looks at the Taiwan health insurance database and over 4.5 million kids um, and overall 23% of them, seems like a high number to me, have received some steroid burst uh, up to 14 days of steroids for the indications I indicated. Uh, And overall, when you look at kids who had a steroid burst for one of these indications, they had significantly higher rates of GI bleeding, of sepsis and pneumonia, two-fold higher rates overall for those things. So even short-term therapy in very healthy young kids with little, you know, respiratory and other indications, there's a consequence to the amount of steroids you use. Now you imagine these kids are, they're not getting 60 milligrams of prednisone, but they might be getting something equivalent to what you would normally use for Burst steroid therapy for however you use that. There is a downside, and that needs to be considered. Uh, There's a nice little report from the journal rheumatology that reviews and shows you pictures of hydroxychloroquine-related hyperpigmentation. I know I'm sure you've seen this. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't recognized it, but patients on chronic antimalarial therapy, it's been described with chloroquine as well get this sort of blue or blackish uh, slate-colored discoloration of skin and mucosal membranes. It's been said to occur in as much as 30% of people, and usually somewhere around 7% is the lower number, somewhere in there. In this recent report, it says the risk was about 5%. The risk factors for, also, for that might have contributed to this would include, uh, yes, steroids, um, other forms, other causes of bruising, Anticoagulant therapy and trauma. So maybe you need a reason to develop an ecchymosis, and but doesn't resolve on hydroxychloroquine. They didn't really say that, but nonetheless, uh, if you stop the hydroxychloroquine, these lesions don't usually go away right quick. They they're very slow to resolve, and most, in my experience, don't resolve at all. So that's a common thing that is seen that not talked about very much. There was a nice report about another a drug working in non-radiographic axial spa. This comes from who I deem to be the um, elite of spondylitis research. The lead author was uh, Desiree Vanderhyde, uh, also included Maxine Dugados and Walter Maximovich and Jakim Sieper. It's about golimumab's efficacy in patients with non-radiographic axial spa. This is a a long-term extension study of the original uh, study showing that it works, um, golimumab versus placebo. And that when golumab patients then rolled over to continue galimumab in the trial, they had like an ASAS 20 of 70%, but on extended use, it was 84%. Placebo patients uh, had a background placebo rate um, in the double-blind portion of trial of 30%, uh, 40%, but then when they crossed over, they went to 75% in the open-label extension. So galimumab can now be added to the list, a growing list of drugs that seems to work Glimmeb is not yet approved for non-radiographic axial spa, although I would expect this data would be used for future approval. Um, I found a really disappointing result uh, and report in JAMA Internal Medicine about the effect of what I call multimodal conservative therapy for CMC1 osteoarthritis. That's base of thumb osteoarthritis you know, I don't know what your treatment is. I don't think there is a good treatment. Splinting doesn't work all that well. Analgesics are sort of so-so. Injections are great, but how often do you want to do that? In this particular study, 204 patients randomized to either receive education alone or what they called multimodal treatment, which was education, splinting, hand exercises, um, diclofenac gel, um, and they looked at 6- and 12-week outcomes They basically saw there was some improvement in function, but no improvement in in pain in those who were treated with this sort of multimodal conservative approach. What can you say about these results? Well, it's like a lot of other OA studies. Modest effects, ineffective uh, treatments, disappointing results. This is a big public health problem. You know, 54 million Americans have osteoarthritis. It's estimated that You know, over a a third of them have hand arthritis. CMC arthritis is three times more common in women than men. Elderly women, about 5% will have CMC1 arthritis. Do the math, 5% of that 54 million, I mean, still some gigantic number. And what's your best therapy? Oh, you don't have one. I don't have one. If you have one, please do the study. Get it published because the rest of us are waiting. Why is there not more drug development in this area? This is a gigantic unmet need. There has been a lot of drug development in other areas, including IL-17 inhibitors for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you saw a New England Journal this past week, there were two back-to-back articles looking at the efficacy of uh, IL-17 inhibition uh, in patients with a dual IL-17 inhibitor, bimekizumab. That's an IL-17A and an IL-17H inhibitor given to patients with um, moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. This is a psoriasis-only study. And it was studied head-to-head against secukinimab and head-to-head against adalumab. And as you might expect, the IL-17 inhibitors are, you know, very good, but maybe the dual inhibitor might be better than the single inhibitor. So it did outperform secukinumab in some parameters. It did outperform adalumab. Again, all the outcomes here are Posse 90 Posse 100s very impressive data here. But there's a small downside. While most of the adverse events um, uh, in between the treatment groups were basically, you know, equal, you know, there's a very low infection rate, very low cancer rate with these therapies. And is that because they're being tested in psoriasis or because IL-17 inhibitors generally are very good? Um, These dual inhibitors have a higher rate of candidiasis. That's oral and mucocutaneous candidiasis has always been on the list of things you should look out for with IL-17 inhibition because IL-17 knockout mice, IL- humans with IL-17 deficiencies have a much higher risk of mucocutaneous candidiasis. So when Ixakizumab, Secukinumab, Bredalumab were all in development, that was a big worry. We we're going to see a lot of candidiasis, but we didn't. The rates of candidiasis um, invasive candidiasis, almost nothing. And, you know, skin and mucocutaneous is very low. Um, but with this dual inhibitor, bimekizumab, and another one I tweeted about earlier in the week, what's that called? Um, sonolokimab, something like that. Um, both of these had higher rates of, again, candidiasis. So in the, this particular study, bimekizumab, 19% versus 3%. Um, I think that was against adalimumab, um, and another study was also higher. like, uh, Bemakizumab bimich- was, and then this sonolocumab was 17 and a half versus 17 and percent versus 1.9 percent um, with secukinumab. So again, the downside you might actually do better with dual inhibition of IL-17, IL-17H, A and H. Most of the signaling in IL-17 is through A. There's some through H, and that's why people are looking at the dual inhibitors. There might be a be- clinical benefit, but there may be a safety downside. Where will this go? The FDA only knows. A nice report from Atul deadarb and, uh, and colleagues from our, uh, um, our annals of rheumatic disease looking at tofacitinib in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. This um, data has been uh, presented at meetings. It's in front of the FDA. Uh, I think that the uh, the makers of tofacitinib are looking for a new indication in that area. But as you know, all of the JAK inhibitors and their future indications are on hold while the FDA does an analysis uh, and makes some decisions about the Pfizer 1133 study, about the long-term safety of tofacitinib, and that's holding everything up. But this data looked very good. 269 ankylosing spondylitis patients showed really good results, asas 20 responses of 56% with tofacitinib, 29% with placebo. Um, Patients had to get into that trial by being non-steroidal failures. Uh, Safety looked really good. Maybe a few more cases of zoster, 2.3%, I think, was the number um, on the JAK inhibitor. Uh, This data is going to be important in getting um, the JAKs into the spondylitis business, is probably will be the first indication. When that's going to happen, doesn't we don't know until the FDA and EMA complete their analysis of the safety from that 1133 study we've talked about in the past. The ACR this week um, put up notice of its new update on the COVID-19 vaccine guidance. You've seen that. We've talked about that. You can now find that on Room Now. You can also find that on. Uh, rheumatology.org, where it's under press releases or, or new guidelines. Again, this is an update that says here they have new information. They've updated their information about mycophenolate, methotrexate, non-steroidals, and Tylenol. Um, you should read it. You should come up with your own uh, own guidance. I'm not a big fan of these guidelines because if you read them, and by the way, they're based on no data. I mean, there's no data studying these drugs in our patients with this vaccine. So it's all assumed data from past vaccine studies. But if you read these data, it's okay to continue to take your biologic or your DMARD, you know, IL-6, IL-17, IL-12, 23, IL-23 inhibitors, belimumab, oral cytoxan, azathioprine, leflunomide, sulfasalazine, steroids, IVIG, hydroxychloroquine. Yes, continue all those drugs uh, and give the vaccine as you're supposed to give it. But if you're on a few drugs, wait a second, Let's start holding therapy here. They say you should hold your abatacip, IV and sub-Q, your IV cytoxin, mycophenolate, methotrexate, and the JAK inhibitor, and wait. New recommendations on holding Tylenol and nonsteroidals the day of the vaccination. Again, there's no data about any of this, really. Um, I'm not doing it. But nonetheless, you should read it, make up your own mind, talk to your, you know, talk, uh, listen to uh, Room Now Live. Jeff Curtis has got a great lecture that we're going to present in the next week or two um, that really, uh, he presents the data for the ACR guidelines. Jeff's leading the the gargantuan task by the ACR task force to come up with guidelines. I praise them for their work um, and they know the pressures on them to come up with guidance that you and the rheumato- rheumatologist out there can lean on uh, in knowing what to do. Um, I've studied the vaccine, um, I guess, research area for a number of years. So I have my own ideas about that. But listen to the experts um, and then say, well, Jack Kush says, and then they'll say, well, they'll tell you what they think of Jack Kush." We're all friends, aren't we? Um, I want to encourage you to go to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. This past week, we had three nice lectures. Um, uh, Roy Fleischman talking about that 1133 safety study. Maya um, book talking about difficult refractory RA and Alan Matsumoto doing a masterful job reviewing the ACR uh, and ULAR guidelines for treatment of RA. You know, when we did Room Now Live, we had 440 people tune in live and watch that session. Um, since we just posted that on Tuesday night uh, on our website and on YouTube, it's been viewed by over 300. You don't want to miss out on future Tuesday night rheumatologies. We have one coming up this week, We're going to have highlights from our session, our pod on psoriatic arthritis. Uh, Eric Ruderman, uh, Alexis Ogdi, and a nurse practitioner talking about her approach to psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. It's going to be a really nice session. I want to remind you that uh, if you have a case or question, you can uh, click on back talk on the website or on the email, and I have a case. And this comes from Dr. Rudy Green in Oregon. Rudy. Hi, Jack. It's Rudy Green from Ashland, Oregon. I have three patients who've developed thrombocytopenia. Uh, I don't have Rudy's recording. Rudy sends a question in uh, about, he's got three cases of patients taking Actemra who've developed thrombocytopenia. Wants to know if I've seen it, what I should do about it. Well, it's a rare event. Um, I've not yet had a case of thrombocytopenia, but it is in the package insert with uh, ceruliumab, the newer IL-6 inhibitor, the rate's about 1%. With uh, tocilizumab, it's one3 uh, to 1.7% at 4 and 8 milligrams per kilogram, respectively. These are rare events. If you look at the guidance on how to monitor, you know, there are pretty clear guidelines about LFTs and, um, and leukopenia and also thrombocytopenia that they say, basically, you watch at this level, you adjust and watch closer at this level, and then you don't give. The bottom line is you shouldn't give an IL-6 inhibitor to someone who has a platelet count less, of, less than 100,000. If they develop a platelet count less than 100,000, you should watch them, monitor them, maybe lower dose or whatever. But if it are below 50,000, 50, you should probably stop. It turns out that below 50,000 is really quite rare. So, Rudy, it is in there. The issue really is, is it due to Ectemra or is it due to RA, another drug toxicity, MAS? et cetera. I've had a few patients recently, two specifically, on leflinamide who developed really low thrombocytopenia. And my question is, is this some crazy variant of Felty syndrome? You know, they've had bone marrows, and they're, they're making lots of platelets, um, and they're being treated. Um, one had to be treated for very low levels. You know, could this be ITP occurring in the face of uh, RA? And that's been reported. It's pretty rare. Um, There are a number of other considerations, but think about drug, drug toxicities, drug interactions, MAS can lower your platelet counts, macrophage activation syndrome, but those people are going to be sick. They're going to have crazy labs and other cytopenias as well. So that's it for this week on the podcast. Be sure to um, go to the website, check out these citations and more. If you have a question or a case, you can put it in there uh, and we'll discuss it in future issues. Again, this is for rheumatologists only. Um, I don't do patient cases here. Um, Can't do internet medicine. It's not a good idea.